You're listening to a podcast from JNNP. Welcome to February's JNNP podcast. I'm Harriet Vickers. We've known for a while that patients with Parkinson's disease can become addicted to dopamine replacement therapy and have withdrawal symptoms. But it's now also emerging that some people have trouble coming off dopamine agonists. Margarita Pondel at Toronto Western Hospital has investigated the prevalence of dopamine agonist withdrawal syndrome in the hospital's movement disorders clinic, as well as which patients are most at risk and how the problem's being dealt with. I caught up with her on the phone to ask what they found. When the syndrome was first described by Rabinac and Nirenberg, uh, they were following a sample of patients for different reasons and evaluating anxiety and uh, depression and uh, different parameters. And some of them had ICDs or other uh, adverse effects from the dopamine agonist. Okay, so is it impulse control disorders? Yes, yes. So the the dopamine agonists were withdrawn and they realised that in some of these patients, although the dopamine replacement therapy was adjusted after the reduction of the dopamine agonist, they found some symptoms didn't respond to this treatment. And these symptoms were psychiatric symptoms, anxiety, panic attacks, agitation, irritability, dysphoria, insomnia, fatigue, uh, pain, sometimes generalized, and drug cravings. And that is um, how they so that there, those symptoms that were not responding to levodopa and uh, persisted during the own uh, status of the state of the patient the, uh, all around the day, uh, were something else and not just related to the change of the medication. Okay. They observed also that is the, the severity of these symptoms increased as the dose the, the dopamine agonist was reduced. It uh, was related in time to dopamine agonist uh, dose reduction, and uh, those symptoms were of significant uh, impairment in the patients. Right, okay. What were the questions that you wanted to, to answer with your study? How did you want to, to follow up that Rabinac and, and Nirenberg paper? We have seen here some of these problems uh, when we change the treatment of the patient, but Sometimes the patient goes to care of his neurologist, and so we didn't know at what extent we have uh, had this problem with our patients, and so that is why uh, we thought that it would be very important to evaluate this data, how the patients have been managed or if the problem um, has been addressed, and how frequent the problem was. So you had... 84 patients in the end, which you included in the analysis. So what were your headline results? How many of these patients did you find actually had withdrawal symptoms? So of uh, these 84 uh, patients, half of them were withdrawn from dopamine agonists because the ICDs, half of them. And the rest for different reasons, hallucinations, uh, dizziness, nausea, whatever. And then, in our database, we introduced all the symptoms that could suggest dopamine agonist withdrawal syndrome. Uh, we realized when we, we look at the database and not just analyze it statistically, but when we, we were seeing what was happening, 
these uh, withdrawal symptoms were just in patients uh, withdrawn from dopamine agonists because ICDs. Right, okay. That was the huge, a huge difference. So we have uh, 40, 42 patients uh, withdrawing from dopamine agonists because of ICDs. And from this, uh, 13 had uh, suffered symptoms suggestive of dopamine agonist withdrawal syn uh, syndrome. And from the 42 patients who were withdrawn uh, from dopamine agonist uh, because different reasons, not uh, ICDs, none of them has symptoms which suggested this syndrome. Okay. So, so what do you make of this association with the, the impulse control disorders? So, of course, we have to think that both things are related. So that having ICDs is a risk factor, important risk factor, to eventually develop dopamine agonist withdrawal syndrome. It doesn't happen in all patients, but in a, let's say, third of them. Those numbers are very, very close to the ones that uh, the study of Rabinak and Nirenberg shows. So, in general, as you know, the ICDs uh, have been related with uh, alterations in the reward circuit and uh, different uh, sensibility of dopamine receptors in different parts of the brain. And, of course, this is like a, it's an addictive problem. For me, the most important question should be how can we detect which patients with ICDs are um, in risk of developing dopamine agonist withdrawal syndrome. Do you have any ideas about what those factors might be? Did you get any clues from this study? Uh, we did an, an analysis just considering the group with ICDs. And uh, see in what the patients who develop uh, dopamine agonist withdrawal syndrome differ from the patients we didn't. We get two things that could be interesting. The group who developed those uh, had uh, a higher basal levodopa dose at the moment of withdrawal. That was statistically significant. And also um, there were more antecedents of smoking, previous smoking in this group. Okay. So this high levodopa baseline has been identified also as a... Um, risk factor not so strong as the dopamine uh, agonist treatment for developing uh, ICDs. So maybe the addictive trait is just uh, is related also not just with the, the ICDs but also with the risk of developing this syndrome. But that, that has to be demonstrated with scientific studies. That's looking to the future, um, but what about clinicians now? What advice would you have for them when they're thinking about taking patients off dopamine agonists? What I will say for the, the neurologists and the patients is that the dopamine agonists are very useful drugs for patients for, with Parkinson's disease. They should um, take advantage of that. And the most important thing is everyone, and especially in the patients that uh, develop ICDs to be aware during withdrawal, these symptoms can arise and the patient has to know that, the family and the, the physician, the neurologist 
uh, the, the ideal thing is to follow very close the, the patient and could reassure the patient that that will stop, that will improve in some weeks, or if they are uh, more severe and they can uh, not be free of that, in some months maybe you have to reduce slowly the medication, the dopamine agonist. Sometimes that in these patients with ICDs has the problem that the ICDs combat, but with the support of the family, the support of the physician and the reassuring of the patient, I think that, that it would be a very good way to manage that. We don't know if the antidepressives or anxiolytics are of any help here. We didn't analyze strictly that, but we saw that in both groups, the same number of patients were treated at sometimes with these drugs during the withdrawal time. My recommendation is the, the following the reassurance uh, of the patients. And um, in two cases, we were not able to reduce the, the patients stay with low dose of agonists because of the devastating symptoms. But this is a small number, just two from the 13. And that is the same thing, uh, more or less the same proportion in the study of Rabinac. It looks like the most of patients recover. Most of them recover in a short time, less than six months, and there are some special and difficult cases that need more follow-up and care. Well, Marguerite, that's some very helpful advice, so thank you for coming on and sharing that with us. So thank you very much. Uh, thank you very much for your help and for your interest in, the, in our work. And that paper is now up on genmp.bmj.com. That's all for this edition, but for more from us, have a listen to the podcast we recorded at the British Neuropsychiatric Association meeting. We've got interviews with all of the speakers at the meeting, including Neil Greenberg on neuropsychiatry in the army beyond PTSD, updates on deep brain stimulation for mental illness and autoimmunity in neuropsychiatry, where we are now with epilepsy and affective disorders, as well as a feast of others. They're all up with the rest of our audio offerings on the JNMP podcast page and available through iTunes. Next month, we've got a special on stroke, so come back then. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.